It... I got the horse right here. The name is Paul Revere. And here's a guy that says if the weather is clear, can do. Can do. Welcome back on this Friday, November 30th to Can Do, the podcast about all things horse racing. Some history, some handicapping, and some humor. As you all know, we took the week off last week. I wanted everyone to make sure to enjoy the Thanksgiving holiday. For my part, I enjoyed the eating and drinking a little bit too much. So uh, to work off those calories, I'm going to need to roll up my sleeves and get right here into our podcast. So, again, thanks for joining us today. Our guest is... T.K. Kugler this week. T.K. is the founder and managing partner of Wasabi Venture Stables, a racing partnership that allows those of us who don't have trust funds or $100 bills falling out of our pockets to experience the thrill of owning a horse and perhaps even standing in the winner's circle. So T.K. is going to be our interview guest. We've got a great big score story, although I debated that we might need to rename the segment the kind of score segment or the sort of score segment. You'll understand when you hear it, but I think you'll like the story. It's a it's a funny one. And our guest handicapper, who is joining us all the way from Floral Park, New York, is Ed Harvey, and he is going to handicap one of the big Saturday races at the Big A, the last day of graded stakes in New York for the year 2018. So let's get to the show. Joining us today is our guest, T.K. Kugler. T.K. is a venture capitalist, both in the business world and more importantly for our podcast purposes, the horse racing world. T.K. is the founding partner of Wasabi Stables, a low-risk, low-entry cost racing partnership. T.K., thanks for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Really appreciate you joining us. So, T.K., give us a little bit of background, if you don't mind, on how you got involved in racing. What, what first spurred your love of the sport? You know, I think I think like most things in the world, uh, most stories in the racing world have some level of romanticism, and and mine is no different. Um, uh, my great grandfather uh, was a trainer. Uh, his name was P.J. Lacoste. Uh, he and his brother were uh, kids of the Depression and uh, grew up um, really on uh, fairgrounds racetrack in the Lowlands, and okay. uh, and and they. Um, uh, you know, I, and my grandfather lived till he was in his nineties, even though he stopped training probably in the early seventies sometime. Um, but I heard the stories as a kid and he, he lived until he was in his nineties. And so I got to know him, you know, well into my life. So the stories of the racetrack became a romantic thing in my head. And what I promised myself was that when, you know, I had enough money and, uh, I was going to go off and go to the racing stable. And uh, so I went off and became a venture capitalist in, in the real, in, in sort of real life, if you will. And uh, I, I took some of the things I'd learned from there and uh, um, I started Wasabi Venture Stables uh, two years ago. You know, uh, TK, you really touched on something uh, that I had never thought of before until you mentioned it. But I think, uh, and a lot of horse players might not like hearing this, but I think that the people who are involved in our game they are romantics to a certain degree. I think they love a good story and they, they love the drama um, and the pomp and the circumstance. That, that's, that's actually a really good observation about the, uh, the love of the game. So, you know, you mentioned you're a, a venture capitalist. Um, and I would imagine in the course of doing that, you learned some lessons that you have applied in creating your horse racing partnerships as well. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so I, I spent all of my adult life, um, since I was really 15 years old, building um, startups. Um, 
and uh, either on one side of the table is sort of a founder, or on the other side of the table is an investor. And I, I really, that's all I've ever known. And and so what I learned really from the startup world was uh, the ability to be agile. You know, um, mm -hmm. the ability to be gritty. Uh, you know, sort of being disruptive. How can you look in an industry or an opportunity where there's uh, things that are ineffective or inefficient? and create something that's actually more effective, more efficient. And so uh, as I started to look around to build a racing stable, I thought there were plenty of opportunities to build it, building concepts like crowdsourced um, uh, opportunities, uh, heavy use of digital marketing, heavy use of custom technology um, to allow uh, you know better ways to communicate with people who were in a syndicate. and. Those were the things that, you know, 25 plus years of being in the startup world, uh, I did when I brought those to serve it to the table. Um, and, but it was really, you know, and it was the other thing that you learn is, is that you, you, uh, in the startup world, you, you tend to start small and grow big, right? And sometimes in racing, a lot of people start big and go down because, you know, they burn the cash and they realize, well, I didn't know what I was doing. So I spent all this money. Yeah, so we started small and then have grown since that. Well, that re brings to mind the old saying, TK, that if you want to get uh, re realize a small fortune in racing, start with a large fortune. <laughs> That's so, right. My, my great-grandmother, I can hear her voice right now saying that to me, too, <laughs> as a matter of fact. So. That's great. So, you know, you uh, you did tell me earlier about some interesting ways that, you know, uh, they, well, let me put it this way. Some things that you saw in partnerships that you – participated in before you started Wasabi that you, you know, felt, you know, this could be handled differently, as you said, uh, disruptively. And I think that um, a lot of it are, revolves around the engagement that you uh, foster with your with your partners and your investors. Can you, can you tell us about that? Yeah, so, uh, before, I, like I said, I started Wasabi uh, Venture Stables two years ago. And so the year before that, so I guess that would be 2016 or so, um, I spent most of 2016 buying into um, syndications and partnerships around the country. I, I, I joined about a dozen different of them. Mm -hmm. um, you know, a horse here, a horse there. You know, four or five horses from one syndicate. Um, you know, I, so I bought I bought into a, a great number of, of syndications. And what I was doing was looking at what some of them did well, what they didn't do well, what I could learn. Um, what I could learn when I saw things that people were doing well, um, what kind of trainers they worked with and how they communicated with their partners, all of these things. Um, and I saw a wide race. <laughs> the short answer is um, uh, the, the, the racing industry and the syndication world, generally, uh, I would say my experience was lackluster. Um, I can tell you, I, I joined, just anecdotally, I joined one particular partnership in question. And from the time that I signed up and joined into a horse, I never received another communication from that partnership from that point forward. Wow. Ever. Wow. I have no idea what I, I, except for what I could find on Equibase and following it that way. I never, ever got another communication from the partnership itself. Um, you know, so that's one extreme. You know, all the way to you know, oh my gosh, I gotta get, I'm getting another quarterly bill, and it's not really obvious what these bills are. Um, all of those types of things. Oh, there's there's strange management fees attached to monthly bills. You know, it's all of these things that you hear when people join syndications. 
um, you know, peculiar relationships between the trainer and the syndication runner. You know, you're the manager of the syndication where I wonder if the, I, I wonder if the trainer is actually giving a kickback to the management for bringing the horse to them. I mean, it's, I saw all kinds of strange things that would not play out in other industries. And so I decided, Hey, I'm not going to do any of those, um, when it's time for, for us to start. So we, 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 we really started with a blank slate and, and like I said, uh, took some, and there were some that were good too, by the way. I mean, they're definitely, um, sure. I don't want to disparage every syndication, you know, uh, out, outfit out there because it's not that. Um, there are definitely some that, and I learned some from, 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 I learned things from some of them uh, that I borrowed and said, no, oh, that's a good idea. I think we can use some of that. Um, and that's, uh, but you, you know, I, I don't think that's another startup idea though, right? You, in the startup world, you often go out and experience life as a customer first so that you can say, oh, what, is it? what do I like about what's in the marketplace today? What don't I like and what can I improve upon? And that's, that's kind of what I spent that first year doing. Oh, that's great. Yeah, no, you know, it brings to mind actually, uh, you know, how did a, how did a fantastic uh, outfit like McDonald's get started? It was because Ray Kroc, you know, had experiences at fast food restaurants. And he said, I know what we can do better than this, right? So uh, right. it's really that, that same type of thing. That's, that's, that's really interesting, actually. So you, you do um, a lot of things around, you know, obviously a common thread, I think, uh, that ran through your, the comments you made were, you know, just a, lo- a lack of engagement from the managers to the partners. And, of course, in some of those cases you talked about the that's a very loose definition of the term partner. Um, right. So, so what are the, you talked about digital marketing earlier and, and digital engagement. What are the things that you're doing with the partners to keep them engaged? Well, I mean, I'll tell you some things that I think we do that almost no one else in the entire world, in the entire world does in the racing world, which is, I mean, we have, and these are things that I have an advantage to utilize that other people may not. I mean, we have a custom app you know, both on iOS and Android that, that our members can use to log in and keep track of their horses when they're on an app. I have, we have an online closed chat, um, platform, um, where all of our 300 plus members chat all day. If I, if I run one and looked right now, I promise you there is a dozen conversations going amongst partners in our group from all over the world chatting with each other. And so decentralized communication amongst the partners. So we're creating a community and creating friends that otherwise would not have even known each other. Um, so those are the kind of things, I mean, all of our, everything about managing a horse and looking at the horse is all a custom platform that we built because you, you can't, one of the things when I got in and, and told people, told racing people what my dreams were. And my dream, by the way, is we're going to have 3000 members in our group in the next, wow. you know, three years. Wow. That's the goal. Okay. <laughs> We're at 300 plus right this second. Yep. Um, but when I told people those dreams, even 300, what I heard overwhelming from racing folk was, oh, you're never going to be able to manage that. That's impossible. You know, because, mm. but mm. it is impossible if you don't use technology, right? I mean, it's right. impossible to keep track of all the bills and the people and how the money's moving around and, you know, <laughs> how to communicate with all of those people impossible to do if you're not using technology. It's just not possible to, to pull it off. And, mm-hmm. But what I always told them, what I always told horse folk when I talked to them and I explained to what we do is 
Amazon has millions of users. Somehow they're able to communicate with all of them, right? <laughs> and and but they but they wouldn't have been able to do that if they were running it still like Sears run their business, right? Yep. And it's it's about it's about thinking about a business differently and saying what can I borrow from other industries to bring to this to be disruptive. Oh, that's terrific. And, you know, you mentioned that you wanted to bring in 3,000 people. You're at 300 right now. And, and I think one of the things that you told me is you're also doing digital marketing on that front to get people into the uh, into the partnership to spread the word, right? Because it's not – you can't – if you want to go from 300 to 3,000, that's not a word-of-mouth uh, proposition, right? No, but, uh, but believe it or not, it becomes a multiplier effect, right? In the, in the digital marketing world, there's something called a viral coefficient. And the viral coefficient is the number of people who tell other people to join something. And our viral coefficients have gone very high. So on any given month right now, we add between three and 600 members, 30 and 60 new members every month now, even at our current trajectory. And most of that happens via one of our members telling someone else, hey, this is pretty cool, you should join. And at least half of that comes from that. The other half is, you know, they saw something that we put on Twitter or Instagram or, you know, uh, Facebook or something. But half of our growth every single month comes from one of our members coaxing a friend to join. Well, you know, Tika, I, I always say I like to learn something new every day. And now I learned a new term today, viral coefficient. I'm going to... I'm going to find a way to work that into the next conversation I have with somebody, so I sound really smart. <laughs> That's good stuff. Um, you know, uh, TK, I know you're, you're you're playing in the claiming game, and, and I would imagine, you know, I've heard the claiming game. It's often referred to as the last bastion of true capitalism, which I would imagine plays <laughs> right up your uh, alley, right, uh, being a, a venture capitalist, because you, you, you have to have the right mindset for it, correct? Yep, you, you do, and... So, and just to, just to make, make sure, we started as, the first year, we were pretty much a, almost nearly 100% a claiming operation. Okay. Um, when we got to the second year, and, and we're in our second year now, there was definitely appetite from our group to say, hey, what if we added in some two-year-olds? What if we add in some yearlings? Um, and we've now actually even added broodmares. So we, we have a band of broodmares. We, uh, we have a group of yearlings that we're going to do a pin-hooking operation with. Okay. And uh, and we have a group of two-year-olds that we bought at auction that just started running. So we we although we still do a lot of claiming. I mean we, <laughs> uh, uh, but uh, we we we're, we're moving so we want to cover the entire end-to-end cycle of the racing industry. You know, and you but, the, but I love claiming. I mean, I'll tell you right now, if I if I love the claiming game. I love the I love the gamesmanship that's going on there. Yeah, um, we've had great success there. <laughs> believe it, I just actually told someone in our group because we had two horses claimed away in the last week. Um, believe, believe it or not, and no one believes the statistics, but because it's so good, forty-five um, percent of all of our horses are profitable. Wow, that's, that seems like a lot. That, that sounds this, like a lot. Yeah. That sounds like a lot. In this business, having 45% of your horses profitable, both of the horses that I that got claimed away in the last week were profitable for us, meaning the money that our club members put in, they got more money back <laughs> um, than, when, than what they put in. So that just doesn't happen in this business. 
No, you know, and uh, it, it's interesting too. The uh, first of all about the expansion of the business. Uh, pin hooking is a term that you know I'm familiar with, uh, but I think maybe not necessarily a lot of people are. And it's a really fascinating aspect of our sport, our business, I should say. Um, we we were actually going to run an interview shortly with a guy named Hunsley Albina, who is a bloodstock agent, um, pin hooker. You know Hunsley. Yeah, I do. Okay, okay. Oh, that's great. Wow, it's a small world. And I know he's done a lot of uh, pinhooking in the in the past. Tell, you know, for those that don't know about it, right, tell us about what is involved in a pinhooking process. Yeah, so first of all, the, the, the term um, refers to, uh, can be, is almost, almost always, uh, in our world, we think of it as horses, but really both horses and cattle have pin hooking operations, so it's a it's a it's one it's a it's a term that's used in, in multiple sort of agricultural industries. But the concept is, is that you are going to acquire a piece of livestock at a certain point in its life. Usually, in, in the racing business, that means you're either buying weanlings or yearlings, and you're selling them as either yearlings or two year olds. Meaning, mm-hmm. you'll buy them as a weanling with the entire concept of holding them long enough that you will then sell them in their yearling year or their two-year-old year. And, um, and you know, just as such, you, you would buy a yearling at a yearling auction with the entire concept that six months later when the two-year-old auctions roll around, you're going to sell that horse at a two-year-old auction. Um, now, what's interesting is, is that the process and the thought process of pin looking although it has a lot of similarities as if you were going to buy something to keep in race, there actually is a little different thought process in the sense that you are, you're, you're not keeping this horse for life. What you're keeping this horse for is, is a pedigree on a page and a physical specimen that the market will want in six or 12 months. So there's a little bit of that future thinking. So you might buy, you might buy a yearling or a weanling that's in a, in a, um, uh, you know, that might be from a very young sire. Let's take somebody like Golden Lad, who's a, who's a rookie sire here. The rookie sires tend to be, tend to do better than the sire that's three or four years old from a temple king standpoint. That doesn't, that doesn't necessarily mean he's going to throw great runners, but, but the people who buy at yearling sales and two year old sales, they love the concept of buying something that's unknown. And a golden lad, you know, is unknown. So, um, so there's that chance that he's going to be a great sire. So, so that might, so we, 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 we purchased a yearling, uh, a golden lad, uh, yearling just, uh, a couple of months ago with the entire concept that we're going to put him into a two year old option and, uh, you know, hopefully, uh, hopefully make a few dollars off of it. But the whole point is, is that we're, we're holding that, 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 that physical, uh, Horse for six, seven, eight months, and with the entire concept that we're going to flip him and sell him um, at the sale, you know, eight months later. So you're looking at, and, and no surprise, but you're looking at two things. It's well, uh, two primary things, I guess: pedigree and kind of confirmation, physicality, right? And, and you're going to, yeah. I mean, you, you you know, all. And if if I was buying, if I was buying for racing, I would probably look at those same things. But let's let's take two. We'll take two different. I'll give you two different horses because we bought one yearling that we left out of the yearling uh, pin hooking program. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a sire like Seville, for example, it's kind of a it's a regional sire. You kind of know what you're getting. 
Um, you know, he's probably going to throw it to a horse. And he may be a good runner. Well, the horse that we acquired there, we're going to keep him run. It's not, it's not a pinholding plan. Okay. Um, but we knew it was a great physical specimen and a great physical price. You know, the, the, vet, the vet work came back perfectly, and we got a great price on the horse. So we're like, well, this one's not going to be a great pinhooking target because the market isn't going to value the civility at a Seville. high enough yeah. Yeah. correct. Yeah. So we're like, but we're going to take the specimen because we think we can turn this into a great race horse, you know, 18 months from now. So <laughs> that's what we did. Where the gold lad was purely a pinhooking. Now, it doesn't mean he didn't have a great, he didn't vet well and didn't have a great pedigree. Um, you know, and didn't have a good confirmation because you need all those too. Yeah, absolutely, but right. you can over you can overlook some pieces of pedigree if you're going to keep the horse in to race. You can't do that if you're pinhooking. Very good point. Very good point. Right. And the and the you know I know there's a huge emphasis these days on the the, the vet exams and the MRIs, the, the horse equivalent of an MRI, I guess. I don't know what that is, what that is. Uh, the bone scans and all of that, right? All of that has to come back clean these days, or they start knocking the price down pretty pretty quickly, right? Pretty quickly. Yeah. Pretty quickly. I mean, the the auction world, you know, not to to go too much on the tangent, but the auction world has become a completely two tier system. There are the horses that vent perfectly, have a great pedigree, and are taking the confirmation is absolutely stellar. And then there are all the other horses. <laughs> and the horses, the horses that are in the first bucket command massive pricing. And the horses that are in the second bucket are lucky to command any pricing. There's just not much of a middle market anymore. Um, and that probably mimics what's happening in the industry as a whole. There's not a lot of middle market players, right? I mean, you don't, right. you don't, most tracks don't have an operation that has, you know, oh, I've got, I've got 10 horses, you know, as an owner, mm-hmm. you, you don't run into t- too many 10 owner horse, you know, operations anymore. You either run into people who have massive operations or I've got one or two, you know, and it's a, it's a true hobby. There's no middle anymore. I mean, you know, we're, we're an interesting bucket, you know, cause I mean, I have 28 horses in training right now. I mean, that makes us, that makes us fairly decent size. And the, as far as like horses under training standpoint, mm-hmm. um, it, you know, I mean, but uh, that's uh, but there aren't a lot of us floating around that uh, that are in that sort of twenty to forty operation. You know, you got people with hundreds, and you got people with you know ones and twosies. But there's not a lot of middle market anymore. Well, I suppose that's that's where the mar- the partnerships like Wasabi can come in, right, and fill that void a little bit, as as you said, right, because they can, you know give access to, you know, a, a larger universe of runners um, that, you know, the average person, you know, probably would not be able to do on their own. But this way they get to participate in that and have the uh, the, the breadth that a larger stable has. Yeah, I, I think that's, that's right. I mean, but even most partnerships um, exclude most people, right? I mean, they're, I'll, I'll give you a centennial. Um, I don't know if you know those folks or not. Yes. Oh, sure. Yeah. They run a great. Yeah, yeah. They, they run a wonderful, very successful operation. Yep. But you're not you're not going to be in a centennial partnership unless you're willing to put twenty five thousand dollars down. Right. 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 And it's just that's just not happening. Um. And and that's fine. And there's a place for that. And the and the, and, and the industry needs those people definitely. Mm-hmm. But at Wasabi, I've got people that their entire expenditure is measured in three hundred dollars. <laughs> wow. Wow. And 
and they're and they're in the game, right? And they get very similar access that they do as if they were at Centennial. Um, you know, so it's a it's it's just about sort of creating other opportunities for other people, um, and therefore expands the whole school. Well, I'll bet. You know, you ask the average horse player if you told them for three hundred bucks you get a shot at standing in the winter circle. I think there's a lot of horse players out there who would say, you know, I'll pay three hundred bucks to be in a winter circle photograph. That would be pretty cool. Um, yes, yeah, and and you and you got it. And on top of it, be in with a group of people that are just like you too. You know, right. being yeah, able to spend a virtual, but both virtual and real sort of time with people who have the same interest of you and are rooting for the same horses. You know, it becomes a community, right? That's the that's the key. And and I've got people, you know, I've got people in my group, and it it's a, it, it becomes a tiered system, right? I have people who have spent tens of thousands of dollars on horses with me, um, and I've got people who have spent hundreds of dollars with me, and that's okay too, you know, right? Even within Wasabi, I'm going to give different people different opportunities depending on their budget. That's the only way you're going to get to like three thousand members. You're not going to do it with everybody having to write a $25,000 check. There just aren't enough people who can write $25,000 checks. So. Oh, that's, that's, that's fascinating. That's, that's great stuff. So, you know, um, TK, I know when you and I met, one of the things we talked about just that kind of uh, off to the side a little bit was getting new people into our sport, right? And and we talked about there's always that challenge of, you know, they walk into the track and you hand them the, the racing form, let's say, and they look at it and it's like it's like hieroglyphics, right? It just, what is this that I'm looking at here? Um, and look, uh, I have been doing this a long time and I still learn things new every 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 year you know as a when i'm thinking about reading past performances and and running lines and things like that so the the challenge that we all have in this sport is getting new people into the game and getting them kind of interested um enough that they want to start doing a little bit more of their own research and digging etc when you bring new people to the track because i know you like to do that how do you educate them about you know how to approach how to approach this you know now that you're here and, and 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 what to do yeah, you know, so the interesting thing is that, that I, I would put most brand new people into one of three buckets. And, and by the way, Wasabi, I would say, I don't have the exact stats here because we, we we, it's been a little while since we updated, but we're in the range of 65% of the people in our group are brand new to racing. <laughs> so oh. these are brand new people. These are This isn't just, you know, um, regurgitated, you know, same syndication people from other people. These are brand new people by and large. So I would say our, our folks fall into one of three buckets, these new people. One, they're people who just love horses. I, I, there's a significant portion of our group who, have ne- who knew nothing about racing, knew nothing about handicapping, and still to this day, even though they're in our group, they don't care about handicapping or racing. What they care about is they love the horse. They're horse people. Um, they may even be active in another discipline of equine, and this is just interesting to them that they're a part of this as well for, relatively speaking, a small commitment. You know, I have, mm. I have a guy who never owned a racehorse ever in his whole life who's a polo player. That's what he is. And when I met him, he's like, hey, I've never owned a racehorse, I am, but I have six horses of my own. This could be cool to understand how racing works as an owner compared to being a polo owner. Ah. So that's a, just giving you an example. So that's one bucket. The next bucket of people 
what I, are people that I would call are some form of data junkie. Um, they may actively trade stocks. They may love real estate. Who knows? They, they, there's something, the data aspect of, of horse racing, which there is a lot of data, mm-hmm. is interesting to them. They play a lot of fantasy sports. Who knows? It's, there's, there's, it's those group of people, and that's, there's a significant chunk there as well. And then the last people are the people who love the pageantry that happens at racing. You know, the, 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 the actual physical excitement that you're there physically at an event. Um, those are the three buckets of new people. And so when you take someone to the races, you have to know which one of those they are, right? So if you've got somebody who's mostly about the horses, get them to go down to the paddock yeah, and, walk, sure. and, and stand next to them and explain to them what the horses are doing as they're getting saddled. Why do they do what they do? Take them to the barns in the morning mm. so they can actually see trainers work. Those are, those are the things you do with that group of people. You know, the data junkies give them more data. We spent, I'll give you, this is a true story. In our group just yesterday, there was an hour-long discussion about how important it is to understand when the shoes are changed on a horse and what that impacts, how that impacts your handicapping. I wish I could have been and, in on that discussion, I'll tell you that, because that's a mystery right. to me. I mean, so, so we talked ahead. for an yeah. hour, and, and we had a bunch of people contributing, but it was all data, right? Well, when does a bar shoe matter? Well, if it's a bar shoe, you know, are they are they dealing with a quarter crack that's ending or starting? And are they, are, you know, or is this a horse that's always wearing a bar shoe and always has since right. the day it started? Yep. You know, and so maybe it just lives with the quarter crack, you know? I mean, yeah, <laughs> made, well, a dancer, sure. made a dancer ran its whole career with a quarter crack yep. and bar shoes, you know? But you don't know that. If, but that's not a thing. That's like a 200-level handicapping thing, right? Yes. That's a yeah. that's a 200-level data element. And, and I talked about glued-on shoes because we had a horse that when we got him, we switched him to glued-on shoes, and it changed his whole racing style. Um, you know, but yeah. those are the kind of things that's, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, the, it's the data. So those data junkies love that. And then, like I said, and then when you bring the last group to the, to the track, you know, and, you, and, you're, and you're taking them and you're putting them in, the, in a group, then make sure it's social, right? They don't really care about the handicapping. You know, they'll make their $2 bet somewhere during the day. And, you know, they're kind of like my wife. My, my wife does, hey, it's time to make a $2 bet. I'm going to pick this horse because it's, you know, got the little kitten in it. Yeah. Okay, great. Sure. But she loves the social aspect. She loves that there's people she can walk around and talk to, you know, that there's, there's time in between races to interact with people. Um, that's what she loves. So give her more of that. Um, so it's a lot of about, a lot about helping our spirit is understanding that not all one size create, not, not all one size fans are going to be the same. That's the clue. Oh, that's good stuff, and I, I, I want to. I hope you recorded that shoe discussion sometime because I want to download that, <laughs> yeah, that a little bit myself. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah, shows what kind of sicko I am. Hey, uh, TK, do you? Uh, I know you run a lot of horses in Maryland. Do you run solely on the Maryland circuit or primarily on the Maryland circuit? I, I would say that primarily. I, I grew up in Baltimore, um, so I'm a Maryland kid at heart. I haven't lived there in a long time, but I'm I'm a Maryland kid like at heart. So I have a softness for that. And plus, I think the racing in Maryland is very much on the upside. Uh, and, we agree know, completely, but, actually, yeah. But, yep. but, but, but we, we race primarily in the mid-Atlantic, is what I would say. You know, we've got Maryland, 
I've got horses right now um, in Maryland, based in Maryland. We had a string at Delaware for the summer, and now the Delaware's ended. We have a couple of horses at Charlestown right now. We have uh, a handful of horses up at Penn National. We have a couple down on the farm in Virginia. So, um, so we're, we're, I would call us centers in the Mid-Atlantic. Then we have uh, we have a string down at Gulfstream as well. So okay. we keep a, uh, we keep a pretty steady string at Gulfstream as well. That that string will probably grow a little bit in the summer. I mean, in the winter here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like a lot of people, you know, we ship our grass horses down because you know there's been no grass racing, no more turf racing right. happening. Right. Obviously, in the Mid Atlantic in a month or so, and then um, this winter. Um, we are going to do a string at Oaklawn as well. So we're expanding uh, going west, and we're going to do uh, we're going to do a string at Oaklawn uh, coming up, and then we'll, um, uh, and then our goal is uh, we'll add New York and uh, Southern California in the next year. Oh, that's fantastic! That's fantastic! Wow, wow! So you're going to be a nationwide operation pretty soon. Yeah, you know what's interesting is if you we have a map on our website of where our club members live, they're all over. I mean, literally. I think we cover like 24 different states already. I mean, we have people all over the country. We have as many people in New England as we do in the Mid-Atlantic. And that's just, there's no racing in New England. Right. Um, so really you would not. think, wow, you can't, you can't possibly get, you know, uh, you know, club members in, in New England. We have as many in New England as we do in, in, in the Mid-Atlantic. Yeah, I would say, you know, Chip Tuttle and his crew up at Suffolk Downs are trying as hard as they can to keep racing going here. And God God bless them, uh, you know, up here in the, in the Boston area because uh, that is a uh, something sadly missing from the local sports scene here. Hey, um, TK, you mentioned you're a, you're a Baltimore guy, a Maryland guy, so i got to ask you some Baltimore questions here. Uh, the Baltimore Orioles, are they ever going to be good ever again? Bye. I don't, I, you know, I mean, we had a string where there was like two or three years where we comp- we were competitive a couple of years ago. Um, but in my lifetime, so since 19, really like 89, um, we have not been competitive. So uh, alas, all the things eventually come around. Um, you know, it took the Cleveland Indians forever to be good there you too. Go. Yeah. Um, you know, and there you go. But I, I, I don't know if we're in the middle of the bad streak. We're near the end, but I, it feels more like we're in the middle of the bad streak for the Orioles. Well, I don't want to bring you down any further because we had an 86-year dry spell up here in Boston. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> you made a while ago here. <laughs> well, I can just picture now I'm that old guy, you know, going to the, you know, I'm 103 years old when the Orioles win the pennant the next time, you know, and, when, and I'm going to go moving out on the field because, it's, you know, I'm the 103-year-old guy that's there. I could see that happen. Yeah. <laughs> and you have a heart attack because you didn't expect it. Right, exactly. <laughs> hey, I know uh, Baltimore was famous uh, years gone by for uh, very many different varieties of locally brewed beer. Do you have any particular favorites? You know, um, I, I'm not a huge beer drinker, um, uh, but what's interesting, you know, I mean, everybody thinks of Baltimore. If you're a Baltimore guy, you think of Natty uh, Bo. Right, you know, it's a national right. Yeah. It's, a, it's a running joke. That Natty Bow is, you know, the beer of choice of Baltimore. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, uh, you could even get into a whole East of Baltimore soliloquy about uh, uh, Natty Bow. So, uh, but uh, I, I'm more of a, I'm more of a bourbon drinker myself. Oh, okay. Well, give us your give us what's your favorite bourbon because there are a lot of choices out there now. Yeah, my 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 bourbon of choice is Blanton's. Um, so original sort of single barrel. Uh, bourbon and uh, a big fan of Blanton. 
That is a that is a very uh, uh, not the right term, but a refined choice. That's 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 a good choice. That's going deep in the catalog. I think that's a that's a that's a good one. I like that. So uh, listen, I'm a I'm a I'm going to apologize to you, TK, for asking this question, but I got to ask it because I'm a Patriots fan. Ray Lewis, yep. guilty or not guilty? Not guilty. All right. I think it's I think uh, guilty of being stupid, not guilty of anything more than that. All right. Yeah. All right. Well, well, <laughs> that's a topic. That's a whole nother podcast. I think we could go into there. TK, how do people reach Wasabi Stables if they've heard what you've had to say and are interested in getting in touch with you? Yeah, pretty simple. You can go to wasabistables.com, uh, W-A-S-A-B-I-S-C-A-B-L-E-S.com. And, uh, you know, everything should be there until it's safe. And if not, drop us a line. You can, you can find plenty of places to email us from there. Oh, that's great. Okay. Well, listen, TK, you've been a great guest. Thank you very much for your time. As a measure of my gratitude, I want to award you with a gift certificate. I'm going to reach into my goodie grab bag here. And what do we pull out here? It's Look at this. It's a $25 gift certificate to Johnny United's Golden Arm Restaurant. So, uh, That's awesome. <laughs> TK, <laughs> good luck with it. Thanks again for joining us, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. All right, sounds good. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. All right, have a great day. All right, so joining us for our big score segment is Neil Duncliffe. Again, as I mentioned at the top of the show, uh, I debated whether we should call this the kind of score or the sort of score. The story is actually going to bring you back to the dark, prehistoric days of uh, racing before there was simulcasting, which plays a significant part in the reason why this went from being a big score to a sort of score. But I think you'll like the story, and anyone who dabbles in this wagering life will surely understand and appreciate the story. So for this week's big score segment, we turn to none other than erstwhile guest handicapper and big brother of yours truly, Neil Duncliffe. Neil, go ahead and tell us about a big score. All right, now this is not my story, but I will say that I have verified everything I'm going to say through the Keeneland Library, which is, is, a, is a tremendous resource. So the, the odds, the uh, running chart, everything I'm going to give you here happened. And it was also exactly as my neighbor and my friend told me on a ride up to Latonia Park, probably 1983 or 1984. And these two guys, one of them was the bailiff in our court. The other guy was my neighbor. They were the kind of guys who, who dreamed of a big score at the racetrack to make life easier and sweeter. And on this ride up, they told me one story after another about these things that were almost sure things, can't miss, and every one of them ended in a failure somehow or other. Uh, the jockey was so drunk he fell off the horse in the post period. I remember that one. The jockey fell off in the stretch. Um, the saddle slipped. I mean, everything happened at the very last minute to take what was almost in the grasp away. So... Anyway, the story they told was about a horse named Run Kentucky Run, who um, was a Scott County, Kentucky horse where I live. And he was owned by a man named William Robinson, who was a man that I knew. And um, Bill, as he was known, uh, or his trainer, told Smitty and Ray that he had a horse that was going to run at Oakland Park on opening day. And, and to quote their story, when they opened the gate, all they're going to see is her ass. <laughs> and uh, this, this was the, it was the dream tip of a lifetime. And they had it from the owner. The horse was training great. The information was not widely available. And in 1980, the only way you could make a bet was you had to physically be at the track 
with a half hour that the that the windows were open, or you had to get to a bookie. You know, advanced wagering, you know, simulcast, you know, intertrack wagering. You had to be on the grounds or find a bookie. That was it. So, in reliance on this tip, they got together all the money they could put their hands on, and they set out on a Friday morning in February 1980 to drive down to Oakland Park uh, for opening day, which they believed was the following day. Somewhere west of Louisville, Ray opened up the sports page and was just perusing and saw this. Today's entries at Oakland Park. They had gotten the opening day wrong. It was a Friday, not a Saturday. So they, because they were taking a leisurely trip to Arkansas, they had no way to get there in time for this race. And with a little bit of luck, maybe they could get back to Lexington to find the bookie because this was not a bet you could make over the phone. They weren't those kind of guys to begin with in terms of money, and they had the money in their pockets. So anyway, so they raced back to uh, Lexington, and they got their bet down. So going to the chart of the race, uh, it's a five-and-a-half four-long race. Uh, at the first call, the horse, one Kentucky run, was two-and-a-half lengths ahead. At the second call, she was five lengths ahead, and at the wire, I, the chart's a little blurry, but she, it's either a five, an eight, or a nine. She won by daylight, okay? And she, and she paid $97.40 to win. She, she went off at $47 and some cents to win. It was, it was a huge score, okay? That is a big score. And, <laughs> That's a huge score, yes. <laughs> but... But in the, in, the way, in the way that could only happen to Smitty and Ray, even when they won, they lost. Oh. Because that's, that's what the bookie were capped at 20 to 1. <laughs> so. <laughs> so. <laughs> that, that, that's the best story I've ever heard, and I sat in a car with two guys who lived it. So that's my story. <laughs> so I've, I have heard the expression many times, no one ever bet enough on a winning horse, but this is a codicil to that is no one, those guys didn't get paid enough for having a winning horse. Wow. 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 And indeed, the connection is correct. They saw nothing but her ass out of the gate. So. Right, right. I mean, I mean, she flew out of track, apparently. And, um, well, I'm sure. So that, that was, that was the hard luck. It was a, it was a hard luck story of winning is about what, that's where I can put it. <laughs> so we'll, we'll we'll call that the big score asterisk. But that's a great story, and that's that's a great one to leave us with, Neil. Listen, thanks very much. We appreciate it, and we uh, hope to talk to you again soon. Okay, thanks, brother. I'll right, talk yeah. to you soon. Take care. All right, we're going to move on now to our guest handicapper segment. Just to recap from a couple of weeks ago, Scott Carson, our guest handicapper, uh, selected Master Marion, a nice long shot, in the stake, turf stakes at Churchill Downs. Unfortunately... Master Marion scratched, but fortunately, that kept our 100% ROI intact, uh, and that's that's a good thing. So tomorrow, now, uh, we've got the big day at the Big A down in the verdant pastures of South Ozone Park, New York. We've got four graded stakes. Uh, I believe it's the last grade one of the season in New York, uh, and joining us to talk about that last grade one of the season is uh, from, from, I would say, from the floral pastures of Floral Park, New York, is Mr. 
Ed Harvey. So, Ed, you uh, you took a look at the Cigar Mile for us, and you're going to tell us uh, who's going to light the victory cigar when this one's over, right? No, of course. This, this is one's pretty easy, and I'm going with a long right. shot. So the, the key the key here, Bill, to this uh, racing day tomorrow is the weather. The, the expectation is rain is coming into the New York area tonight and will be with us all day Saturday into the early hours of Sunday. With that in mind, I put on my wet, muddy hat and took a look at the a look at the form, and um, even though there's some exciting horses in here, I would say the most exciting is the morning line favorite, Copper Town, by Pletcher, with, with Castellano, um, still a young horse, only run four times, uh, most recently uh, in Keeneland, where he ran a, an optional claimer and won mm. by five lanes, but all, his, all four of his races have been on dry land, um, so I, I wouldn't want to take a chance at five to two. On, on this horse, even though I think this horse has a lot of uh, class to it, and, and, but it has to prove it. And until it gets on that, that kind of surface where it's muddy or sloppy, I'm not going to put my money there. I looked at Sunny Ridge also, another pretty consistent horse running in grade ones, most recently in the Kelso. Um, but he too has, um, he has a wet, wet, wet history, five races, but none winning. Uh, as a matter of fact, the most recent one, he ran sixth, and that's going back, oh, a year and a half ago, yeah. April 17th. So I stood, stood, stayed away from him, Bill, um, and I landed uh, looking seriously at the, uh, the three horses on the outside, True Timber, Timeline, and Pattern Recognition. And uh, the two that stand out of these three, to me, is Timeline and Pattern Recognition. Uh, both horses have run twice. At Aqueduct, uh, timeline as well as a first and a third. Pattern recognition is run twice and, and won twice. Uh, twice. He's two for two on a wet track, as his timeline. Uh, and I, I, did, I simply went with the number seven, simply based on price. So you got a, a Chad Brown, Brown and Velasquez versus Chad Brown and Jose Ortiz on the eight horse pattern recognition. Uh, so Price drove me to the seven, though I think the eight will be there, and, and frankly, uh, Joey Bravo on the on the six horse, running for Kieran McLaughlin at 12 to one, I also see in the mix. So I, I would go with the seven, eight, six, uh, knowing that the big question mark, of course, is the, the horse that's only run on dry land, Coppertown. I like the, uh, I, I like the idea here, Ed, that um, you know when the trainer has two running, how many times have we seen the, uh, the other quote-unquote trainer's horse uh, the other horse of the trainer, I, I should say, actually win the race. I still recall uh, as Charismatic was storming down the lane to win the Derby, the photo of uh, the camera of uh, on Wayne Lucas cheering for Cat Thief, uh, even though he trained Charismatic as well. Right, right. Uh, so, you know, going for the price, I think that's a, that's a good move. And, and, I, and I like your thought, too, about, look, look Copper Town's run triple-digit buyers <clears throat> twice now. you got to respect that. But never been on wet wetland and... Uh, it also, actually, I think looks like there's a lot of speed in here, too. Uh, so uh, I think, oh, yeah. you know, that, that's going to work against him as well. We, we, of course, we know how Mendelssohn did on a wet track in the Kentucky Derby. Uh, so, you know, that one is probably up against Yeah, yeah I threw him out. Yeah. No, I... I, I and another point, Bill, if I could say it, when I looked at timeline and, and pattern recognition, you know, two for two on the wet track... The wet track for pattern recognition was actually rated good. And the wet track for timeline was both sloppy. Tomorrow, it's going to be yeah, sloppy. Yeah, and, and actually, 
That's a really important distinction. Uh, you know, a lot of times I think when we get lazy in our handicap and we tend to look at wet and we say, oh, you know, good wet record, bad wet record. But you really do have to look and see, was it sloppy, was it good, or was it muddy? Because those are all very different kinds of surfaces. And, uh, of course, what gets a little frustrating is when you dig in and you look at, you know, the, the horse one, two on the slop, one, two on the mud, lost three on the mud, and, you know, well, what, what's, the, what's he going to do today? You know, you just don't know. But, uh um, yeah. No, uh, you know, and as I'm looking at timeline too, you know, it's obviously run against some good ones too. So, um, no, I, I like the angle of the the higher priced horse for the trainer, and uh, he'll probably hit this number before uh, this race. But you get Johnny V on board. Wouldn't it be funny if uh, he took home, he brought home number six thousand with a uh, long shot? Yeah, that would be funny. I think he's going to do it today, Friday today, though. But. Uh, We'll see. Well, listen, Ed, thanks a lot. We're going to uh, check those results next week. Uh, and if you join us again next week, we're going to have another great guest. Uh, T.K. Kugler, who was our guest today, is going to return and give us our big score story. And Damian Tosi is going to rejoin us as our guest handicapper. So that's it for this week. I hope you'll join us again next week. We'll have a great guest, another big score story, and, of course, our guest handicapper. Keep in mind that to date, our guest handicappers have an ROI of 100%. That's doubling your money. That's pretty good where I come from. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll talk to you again next week. Take care.